are the Mystery History Podcast. I'm Allison. I'm Rachel. Welcome to episode 141 on the 27 Club. Yes. I'm glad we didn't ever join this club. I'm glad we didn't join this club, too. <laughs> We're going to be like the 37 Club. No, hopefully not no, that club either. that is way too soon. <laughs> Maybe like the 87 Club. That'd be cool. Somewhere between 77 and 87 sounds good. <laughs> Yeah, just as long as we're still like capable of things. Yeah, as soon as I start shitting my pants, I want I want to go. <laughs> true, true to that. So whatever age that is, that's the club <laughs> we're gonna be in. <laughs> um, Jordan and I did this. This was, I think, our very first episode. Um, was it? Maybe well, the first or the second. And I actually removed those two um, from the library because they're terrible, like the worst I've ever heard. I remember liking this episode. So when I oh. saw you took it off, I was like, well, we got to do this again. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it just, and plus it's a different perspective since you're doing this and everything. So it's just good to, to revisit and just forget about that old episode because uh, <laughs> it was terrible. It, we were just learning how to do it. Not saying like that. We're great now. Yeah. But... <laughs> It's got to be better than it was. Well, I don't I don't remember you and your brother having like difficulties in the episode, but I bet I wouldn't because whenever I was listening to it, I was always listening to it with like ro- rose colored glasses at the mm-hmm. beginning. So it's just so cool that you guys were doing that. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it wasn't so I much. T- remember t- it being bad. <laughs> it wasn't technical difficulties as much as it was just like it's so awkward. Like it's so awkward. Oh, yeah. It takes a minute to like get out of your head that you're gonna have this like being listened to and stuff. Yeah. you can't think about it like that or else you're just like tense <laughs> yeah I we we're easy breezy now and yeah we, I just act like nobody's listening to this that's it that's, I don't watch I don't look at the reviews unless you want to give us a five star that's amazing we would love that we might not ever know so if you do <laughs> I filter I filter the the comments for you yeah because I can't handle it uh I can't so that's that but anyways so we're gonna do it again and see what we come up with this time yep we got a few business items to discuss we announced the winner of our tank top giveaway via Instagram and Facebook but we didn't announce it on the podcast because we were having some technical difficulties with our website that is now fixed um, our domain is still not working, but there is a link to our Teespring, which is where all of the uh, merch comes from. So that link is now clickable if you are interested in buying one. But who is the winner of our Suns Out Guns Out tank top giveaway? Red Mask 13. Red Mask 13. Yes. She gave me her stuff, like the size and the which one she wants. So we are going to be ordering that and shipping it out very soon. Thank you to everyone who participated. Thank you, guys. So fun. It's so fun to do those. It is. And we like to do them on big milestones. Three years is a big deal. Our 100th episode was a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. So we've decided to commemorate our three-year episode with some pins um for like a t-shirt or like a jean jacket or a a, purse or a purse book bag yeah yeah all that stuff um now i'll tell you when i opened up the package i was pissed you were so (laughs) mad 
I was so mad. I gave them a one-star review, which I wish I could take back because (laughs) they were all scuffed up and like had stuff around the edges. I was like, what in the crap is this? And then there was a note in there that said that there was protective uh, covering over it so it wouldn't get scratched. So when you get yours, if you'd like one, just there's protective coating and I'm not going to peel them all of them off because it's a bitch. I just love that before you even opened it all the way to find this note card, you were on there giving them a one star review. <laughs> I was, well, first, like you took one out, saw it and you were like, done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was. I was looking for a chat box. I was like, who am I going to yell at about this situation? And luckily nobody was available. But you guys, they... that stinks that you gave them a one star review. That's so sad. I know I need to try to get a hold of them and be like, can we just delete that? Like, I appreciate sorry. Your, your hard work. And I was can just- Can you leave a second review? I don't know. I'll look or into that. Edit, or edit your first review because sometimes they let you edit. Maybe I'll check into that because we, we've gotten all of our stickers from them um, and they've been great, which is why I think right. I was so shocked. I was like, well, this is not the quality that I am used to. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. We need to try to make that right. Yeah. The protective backing or the protective covering is really so good that you don't even know that it's on there and it's a really big pain in the ass to peel it off. So I'm shipping them with it on and each individual person can remove their backing and they look fine. So if you get them and it's like scuffed up and you're like, what is this? Just remove that and it's all fine. Before you leave the one star review. Yeah. Yes. Right. (laughs) It's a lot, but it's a lot harder or easier, I guess, to get something that's crap when it's free. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, but it takes you, the sting off a little bit. Yeah. But whenever you're paying for some, it's like, what is this garbage that I just got? Man, it was bad. But sorry to our supplier. I'll make it right. <laughs> oh, geez. So, yes. Uh, there's a post on Instagram. We will post it. They, there is a limited supply. If you want one, let me know and we will send it out to you. Um, and then, then when they're gone, they're gone. And that's that. That's that. Our first ever pin. Save one for me. <laughs> oh, yes, I will. I will save some for you. I've got some for Jamie off to the side. So we will we will have some to uh, commemorate this for and then we can pass it down to our children. Yeah. Who will be like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever had. Right. <laughs> They'll be thinking the same thing when they look back and listen. Listen to yeah. these episodes like, dang, our moms are losers. Right. Like they don't <laughs> want it to get out at school. <laughs> ah. oh my All right. Goodness. What's the last thing we want them to do? Like, share, subscribe, friends. Yes, please. It makes a difference. Um, but again, and in five star reviews, if you want to do that and push the haters out, which we don't even know if we have, I'm sure we do, but we don't we don't read the comments because they're hurtful sometimes. I read the comments. I don't ever want to know. I know. They're so, mostly good. <laughs> so don't tell unless they're good, you can tell me. I do but tell I you when they're good. Okay. So you've told me one, so that's not a good sign. <laughs> we we don't get a lot so you guys go leave us some (laughs) yeah yeah make me feel better about myself please that would be fabulous (laughs) 
All right. Well, I think that's all the business that we have. Do you have anything else to add? No. All right. Well, why don't you get us started on the 27 Club? All right. So the 27 Club is based on a cultural phenomenon where pop stars and celebrities, usually musicians, seem to die young at the age of 27. There's no obvious link to suggest a strong scientific correlation here, but it remains a famous legend nonetheless. So, like, if you look well, at duh. statistics, it's it's not like a high number of people are dying at 27 if you're, like, a musician. But I don't think that's really the point. No, it's not even scientific. It's, like, paranormal. You right. know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's no science here. Come on. Right. (laughs) The 27 Club is predominantly made up of musicians who would rise to become the voice of their generation and become pioneers in their genre. So from blues to rock to grunge, some of them died from unknown circumstances, others by taking their own life, while there's a substantial number that fell victim to the excess of drugs and alcohol that comes along with being a rock star. (laughs) I get that. Yeah. The term became widely known after Kurt Cobain's death in 1994, uh, with rock fans connecting his age to that of Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Brian Jones, and Jimi Hendrix, though it was notable to fans in the early 70s when those four visionaries died within just two years of each other. So it's been around since since the time that those four passed, if not we- sooner. <laughs> so they but died within... Really, like, set it off. Two years of each other. I mean, that is weird. That is weird. But not scientifically. Yeah, not scientifically. (laughs) They're all huge. And I can't really tell if there's like something about like selling your soul to the devil Mm -hmm. involved with this. I think there is. Yeah. But with that, that plays highly into one person's. And then in the other ones, I think it's more of like a. The 27 Club started with him and then that, the first person, and then everyone subsequently also sold their souls to the devil. I don't know. Right. Yeah, that's always, I think whenever I think of the 27 Club, that's what I think about is the whole selling your soul to the devil to make it big. Yeah. And have you ever seen Jennifer's body? Okay, so I think I have seen Jennifer's body, but I think I was in like college and I'm pretty sure I watched it when I was drunk because like snippets of it I can remember. But was it even out when I was in college? I don't know. Yeah, I, think I think I was so. drunk when I watched it is the, the end game there where I think I've seen parts of it, but I don't remember the story as a whole and I definitely don't remember the whole thing. It is such like, I do not like, what's that girl's name? Jennifer... What's her Megan name? Megan Fox. Oh, yeah. Not Jennifer, because that's her name in the movie. that's her name in the movie. But yeah, Megan Fox. I'm not a huge fan. I don't think she's that great of an actress. But that movie, like all the people that are in it, like it's just a really good movie. And people are probably like, really? You think that was a good movie? Yes, I do. I do think it's a great movie. And it, it's about a rock band that has to sacrifice a virgin to make it big in the music industry. So not so much them dying or selling their soul, but killing somebody else. And she lies and says she's a virgin and she's not. So then she turns into this monster and starts eating boys. 
oh what a cool like premise <laughs> it's it is it really is I don't know I, I don't know it, why I like this it has, it's been on my list like my short list of things I want to watch because I feel like I haven't seen it properly <laughs> mm-hmm. and, so, yeah because that does not sound familiar to me <laughs> it was really good and it's got a really good soundtrack does it and that's hard to find nowadays. Like, I feel like in the 90s, that was a big deal, soundtracks. And yeah. now you you don't care about soundtracks. But that was like the last movie I think I watched that I was like, man, this is a good soundtrack. I liked the Twilight soundtracks. <laughs> you would like the Twilight tra- soundtracks. But I'm not even going to lie. I like those movies, too. <laughs> The bulk of the bulk of the soundtracks that I owned or have on my phone now are from the nineties though. <laughs> yeah, like Idle Hands. That was one of the best soundtracks what ever a made. Good soundtrack, yeah. It was great. That's, that's not on Spotify and it pisses me off. Like I'm sure I have the C D somewhere, but I don't even my car didn't even have a CD player. Like what am I supposed to do? I have the C D somewhere too. I feel like can you piecemeal it together? I remember like half of the songs were missing, right? Yeah, like yeah, some of yeah, some of them I do have some of them on my playlist, but a few of them aren't available, which is just very aggravating, but how sad. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's go back to this. Enough let's with Jennifer's body. We're going to kick it back all the way to 1911. Mm-hmm. So, this is going to be where we start this journey with Robert Johnson. He was born May 8th, 1911 in Hazelhurst, Mississippi. A singer and guitarist, Johnson is considered to be one of the greatest blues performers of all, all time, but this recognition came to him largely after his death. Sunhouse, a famed blues musician and a contemporary of Johnson, claimed after Johnson's achieved fame that the musician had previously been a decent harmonica player, but a terrible guitarist. That is until he disappeared for a few weeks in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Legend had it that Johnson took his guitar to the crossroads of Highway 49 and 61 in Clarksdale, Mississippi, where the devil returned his guitar in exchange for his soul. Like you do. Like you do. I mean, what else do you got? It is this the on? origination of this story? Yeah. Well, with and, him. Yes. This is where it's all started. Here. For the 27 Club, but is this where the origination of selling your soul to the devil to become like a good musician? Is that where that all came from? I mean, may 1911's pretty early. I this might be like earlier than that. Yeah. I don't know. Prob- probably. I don't know either. Probably it seems like something that's been around forever, right? Yeah. <laughs> he recorded less than 50 songs. In August 1938, just a few months after his 27th birthday, Johnson made moves on his wife. Not on his wife. Made moves on the wife, I'm sorry, of the owner of a roadhouse where he was playing. Don't ever do that. It's not a good idea. (laughs) Never. Drank from an open bottle of whiskey he was offered, and then he died three days later of strychnine poisoning and pneumonia. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. (laughs) If I was a betting woman, which I'm not, it was probably the husband slipping some stuff in there. Yes. He is buried in an unmarked grave in Mississippi. Johnson came to the attention of many musicians and won over new fans with a reissue of his work in the 1960s. 
Another retrospective collection of his recordings released in the 1990s sold millions of copies. Ain't that crazy? Like, isn't that sad how you only get famous after you're dead? Right. That happens a lot. But at least his legacy, I guess, is living on. Right. Um, His songs were covered by Cream, uh, called the Crossroad Blues, Captain Beefheart, which I love that name, uh, Terraplane (laughs) Blues, and the Rolling Stones' Love is Vain and Stop Breaking Down. Keith Richard. Oh, I'm sorry. What did I say? Love is vain. Could be. Not wrong. Works either way, but it's called love in vain. (laughs) (laughs) Keith Richards once said, you want to know how good the blues can get? Well, this is it. And and I think like the devil went down to Georgia. That song always sticks with me too. Like about selling Mm -hmm. a soul to play a what? A violin? Fiddle? It's a fiddle. It's a fiddle. What's the difference? I think it's actually just the way they're played. <laughs> uh, I don't I don't really know. Huh. My whole life I thought it was a violin. A violin? I mean that makes sense. It literally, it's a fiddle. literally says fiddle in the song multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> I was more focused on the devil part, okay? Oh right. Distracted. but yeah i mean so this is to our knowledge the first kind of like known instance but i but i think that's just like folklore i think that has been around way longer so all right next we're going to talk about jim morrison he was a songwriter and the lead singer for the doors and they had some hits quite a few of them (laughs) they mostly sound the same (laughs) yeah to me (laughs) but that would be like light my fire hello i love you touch me and riders on the storm riders on i know that's (laughs) yeah that's probably the most different song i feel like and that's like one of my favorites i think yeah i mean i love light my fire too that's just fun but it's not big dynamic music here (laughs) no it's the same song with different words right pretty much and but what a what a dream boat can i just say that wow wowzers yeah he's attractive jim morrison was born james douglas morrison on december 8th 1943 in melbourne florida his mother clara clark morrison was a homemaker and his father george stephen morrison was a naval aviator who rose to the rank of rear admiral George was the commander of U.S. Naval Forces aboard the flagship USS Bonhomme Richard during the 1964 Gulf of Tonkin incident that helped helped ignite the Vietnam War. But Admiral George Morrison was, oh, not but, <laughs> also. <laughs> Admiral George Morrison was also a skilled pianist who enjoyed performing for friends at parties. So I love that. Like, that makes me think that he grew up with his dad like big musical family lots of fun Mm -hmm. going on morrison's younger brother andy remembered there was always a big crowd around the piano with my dad playing popular songs that he could pick up by ear in 1965 while studying film at ucla morrison joined classical pianist ray manzarek guitarist robbie krieger and drummer john densmore to form a band that we know now as The Doors. 
With Morrison as vocalist and frontman, Electra Records signed the Doors the following year. And in January 1967, the band released its self-titled debut album. So they became a band and got signed. Within a year. Within a year. That's unheard of. Right. That is super fast. So I think that's kind of something that comes up here is that he really shot to stardom quickly. Mm-hmm. The Doors' first single, Break On Through to the Other Side, achieved only modest success, but it was their second single, Light My Fire, which catapulted the band to the forefront of the rock and roll world, reaching number one on the Billboard pop charts. The Doors and Morrison especially became infamous later that year when they performed the song live on the Ed Sullivan Show. That's crazy. I love how that used to be a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like, how many big bands have you seen performances on the Ed Sullivan show? And that was, like, where you really, like, made it back then. Well, they just don't have that anymore because now we've got, it's all instantaneous, you know? Anybody, we're we're doing a podcast right now. I mean, anybody can do whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Truly, anybody could do anything. (laughs) Because of its obvious drug reference, Morrison had agreed not to sing the lyric, girl, we couldn't get much higher. Oh, my. <laughs> like, that was necessary. <laughs> he was not allowed to sing that on live TV back in the day. Uh, but when the cameras rolled, he went ahead and sang it anyway, cementing his status as Rock's new rebel hero. That's all it takes, ladies and gentlemen. Which we were born was probably- at the wrong time. <laughs> That was probably like, yeah, a huge deal. Like if you think about Elvis and like how they censored him whenever he would dance because his hips were gyrating. And I will say it's pretty provocative stuff. (laughs) But like now people's titties be popping out on stage and sometimes we don't even get a blur. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) They just don't care anymore. This reminds me of Rage Against the Machine. Have you seen? I don't even remember what they were on, but... They, went they were not supposed to do the F you. Mm-hmm. I won't do what you tell me, which is, I like watching that. I remember being like, hell yes. That's the, that is the best part of the song. If you want to get pumped. Oh, that is the best part of the song. That's what you need to listen to. It's just that section. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just love that. That's what they were saying after they got told not to say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just works out perfect. So this reminded me of that, where he was just like, I'm going to do it anyways. Light My Fire, wrapping it back over, remains the Doors' most popular song featured prominently on major lists of the greatest rock songs ever recorded. Yeah, it is a good song. It is. And kind of sexy. What fire Mm -hmm. are we lighting? (laughs) Who's to say? Love lighting a fire. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Morrison spent nearly the entirety of his adult life with a woman named Pamela Corson, and although he briefly married a music journalist named Patricia Kennelly in a Celtic pagan ceremony in 1970, he left everything to Caruson in his will. She was deemed his common-law wife by the time of his death. Throughout his relationship to Caruson and Keenly, however, Morrison remained an infamous womanizer. Of course he did. Of course he did. Of course he did. He could womanize me anytime. <laughs> inappropriate it is 
<laughs> okay. His drug use, violent temper, and infidelity culminated in disaster in New Haven, Connecticut on the night of December 9th, 1967. Morrison was high, drunk, and carrying on with a young woman backstage before a show when he was confronted by a police officer and sprayed with mace. That sounds terrible. That does sound terrible. Oh. Um, he then stormed on stage and delivered a profanity-laced tirade that led to his arrest on stage, which then sparked area riots. Wow. As, as they do. What a badass. Morrison was later arrested in 1970 for allegedly exposing himself at a Florida concert, hmm. though the charges were dropped posthumously decades later. Decades? Decades later. After he died? Was he dead? Yeah. Yeah. It was oh. after he died. Decades later, they dropped these charges. <laughs> Who are you going to get to, like... To serve the crime he's dead i wonder i mean i think he passed away pretty soon after this I, he did so before they could like properly charge him i think it was on records and it was you know there oh, so hmm. they didn't get back around to it for way way long i guess i don't know they must have been like cleaning out their closets 20 years later and decided to take <laughs> care of it i don't know in an attempt to get his life back in order, Morrison took time off from the doors in the spring of 1971 and moved to Paris with Corson. However, he continued to be plagued by drugs and depression. On July 3rd, 1971, Corson found Morrison dead in the bathtub of their apartment, apparently of heart failure. Yeah. Since the French officials found no evidence of foul play... No autopsy was performed, which was in or which has in turn led to endless speculation and conspiracy theories about his death. Because we don't really know. Right. Well, if they didn't, do an, they didn't autopsy, do an autopsy. Yeah, how it's just like, oh well, you heart must have gave out. Like, is that that then? Yeah, I huh. guess. Wow. Okay. Um, in 2007, a Paris club owner named Sam Burnett published a book claiming that Morrison died of a heroin overdose at his nightclub and was later carried back to his apartment and placed in the bathtub to cover up the real reason for his death. Jim Morrison was buried at the famous Pierre, oh, she's Paris, <laughs> Pierre Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. Nailed it. And his grave. No, you has did not. <laughs> How would you say that? Pierre Lachey Cemetery. That's exactly what I said. And you said Lachaz. <laughs> and his grave has since become one of the city's top tourist destinations. If I was in Paris, I'd go see that at the Pierre Lachaise Cemetery. <laughs> they would kick me out of Paris. I can't talk like they would the definitely kick you out of Paris. Oh, man. <laughs> not in my top places anyways so that's all right yeah well what a bummer yep so either way on at 27 and next we're going to talk about janice joplin which i love janice joplin yes she's my favorite she was born on january 19th 1943 in port arthur texas joplin sang in her church choir as a child and showed some promise as a performer she was a good student and fairly popular, 
until around the age of 14 when some side effects of puberty started to kick in. Hmm. Like they do. Like they do. She got acne and she gained some weight. Which is fine. Yeah. I still (laughs) have that problem. Like, and I'm (laughs) past puberty. At Thomas Jefferson High School, Joplin began to rebel. She eschewed the popular girls' fashions of the late 1950s, often choosing to wear men's shirts and tights or short skirts. Joplin, who liked to stand out from the crowd, became the target of some teasing, as well as a popular subject in the school's rumor mill. Hmm. Sad. She was called a pig by some while others said that she was sexually promiscuous so they were calling her a pig and a hoe and which is her damn business if she wants to be either one of those things that's right yes it is you do you janice all the time man it is (laughs) these kids (sighs) um after graduating from high school uh joplin enrolled at lamar state college of technology and the neighboring town of beaumont texas There, she devoted more time to hanging out and drinking with friends rather than studying. I mean, I get it. At Mm -hmm. the end of her first semester at Lamar, Joplin left the school. She went on to attend Port Arthur College, where she took some secretarial courses, which is hilarious. Secretarial courses. Like, can you imagine making copies? No, secretarial courses. That's like typing and stuff. But can you imagine Janice Joplin doing that? No like what (laughs) yeah before moving to la in the summer of 1960 61 which when she was taking those courses this first effort to break away um wasn't a success however and joplin then returned to port arthur for a time in the summer of 1962 she fled to the university of texas at austin where she studied art which is more her speed that makes more sense to me yeah in Austin, Joplin began performing at folk song, folk sings, which I is think a casual where people get around. Oh, <laughs> yeah, hear. casual musical gatherings where pe- anyone can perform. So, like open mic night, right? Um, on a campus at the Threadgills, which was a gas station turned bar with the Waller Creek Boys, a musical trio with whom she was friends. With her forceful, gutsy singing style, Joplin amazed many audience members, and she was unlike any other white female vocalist at the time. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Her voice is amazing. You can tell her her and um, Stevie Nicks, I feel like, are the two most like notable. Whenever you hear them, you know who you it know is. It. Yeah, you know it's them. In January 1963, Joplin ditched school to check out the emerging music scene in San Francisco with her friend Chet Helms. But the stint out West, like her first, proved to be unsuccessful as Joplin struggled to make it as a singer in the Bay Area. She then spent some time in New York City, where she hoped to have better luck getting her career started, but her drinking and drug use, because at this point she'd started using speed or amphetamines, among other drugs... Um, proved to be detrimental to her musical aspirations. And in 1965, she left and returned home in an effort to get herself together again. So she seems to do that. Yeah. It's nice that she has a home base to go back to, though. 
right to recharge some people don't and get it together mm-hmm. exactly back in texas she took a break from her lifestyle that she was living and started dressing conservatively putting mm-hmm. her hair up into buns and doing everything else that she could just to like kind of switch her life around mm-hmm. but that wasn't for her <laughs> she discovered again and she got out good for her be -hmm. true to yourself always always and forever joplin slowly returned to performing and in may 1966 was recruited by friend travis rivers to audition for a new psychedelic rock band based in san francisco big brother and the holding company joplin blew the band away during her audition and was quickly offered membership into the group Fueled by heroin and amphetamines and bourbon she drank straight from the bottle during gigs, Joplin's unrestrained sexual style and raw, gutsy sound mesmerized audiences. And all of this attention caused some tension between Joplin and her bandmates. While their recording for Mainstream never found much of an audience, Big Brother's first album for Columbia, Cheap Thrills, in 1968 was a huge hit. While the album was widely successful, quickly became a certified gold record with songs like Peace of My Heart, which is my favorite, and Summertime. Mm -hmm. Creating it had been a challenging process, causing even more problems between Joplin and band uh, members. The album was produced by John Simon, who'd had the band uh, do take after take in an attempt to create a technically perfect sound. Which is weird, right? That is, yeah. Why would you try to take Janis Joplin and make her sound technically perfect? Because she's not, and that's kind of the point. Yeah, that's that's what yeah, that's what's good about her is the raspy, just raw rawness yes. of her mm-hmm. voice. Yeah. So trying to make it technically perfect does not sound good to me. Right. I also didn't realize that Janis Joplin was in a band at the point where Peace of My Heart and Summertime were released. Mm-hmm. Because the only CD I had was her Greatest Hits CD. And I don't think it says that on the CD that she... It doesn't say Janis Joplin and this band. Right. Big Brothers, I'm, I don't think. I don't know. So that was actually a surprise to me. <laughs> that's hard, like, too. Oh, I did not know that. Well, that's hard, too, because, like, a lot of times whenever you do it with a band, you can't claim, like, the royalties as yourself. After the fact. Yeah, you Mm -hmm. can't claim it as yourself after the fact. So I don't know. I don't know how that all worked out. But, yeah, that was a surprise to me. So Janice struggled with her decision to leave Big Brother as her bandmates had been, like, a family to her. But she eventually decided to part ways with the group. She played with Big Brother for the last time in December of 1968. And then following a historic performance at Woodstock, which I've seen that. Have you seen that? Yes. She released her first solo effort. I got a mold cosmic blues again, mama, which I didn't know that was an album name either. (laughs) That's a long album name. Right. I feel like a lot of information was stripped away from me for only having her greatest. (laughs) It's like, it's all surprises for me. In September of 1969 with the Cosmic Blues Band. Some of the project's most memorable songs were Try Just a Little Bit Harder and To Love Somebody, which is a cover of a Bee Gees song. But Cosmic Blues received mixed reviews with some media outlets criticizing Joplin personally. Mm. So not even just the music. 
just criticizing her, which I feel like is messed up. (laughs) That would be so hard. That would be so hard. Like being famous does not sound like a good time to me. You literally can't do anything. (laughs) Just breathing. Like I don't like the way that their mouth moves when they breathe. Like just stupid shit. Like the have these people have no bearing at least back then it wasn't as bad as probably today where everybody's got yeah. cameras and everything like that an opinion still... and fake and mm-hmm. yeah i just saw something today which i don't follow the kardashians or anything but you know when you're scrolling you see all sorts of crap about them um one of them kylie jenner i think has a kid and the the headline was something about her being a horrible mom like something caught Mm. on camera and like she's a terrible mother and I'm just like how awful like I don't know if she's a terrible mother maybe she is but that just like hurt my heart for her because I'm like gosh you're just like trying to live your life and it's all printed on these tabloids that you're a terrible mom like I don't you don't need that as a mom (laughs) No, you Tell think you you're right doing now, a your ter- on yourself. <laughs> right. You already think you're a terrible mom, no matter if you're the Wonder Woman. But the right. sad thing I think about is not so much the parent as the kid whenever they have to yeah, like older. get old enough to see that. Yeah. It's just so sad. I don't know. So yeah, I feel very strongly about attacking people personally. You can say their album's not good, but man, leave yeah. Janice Joplin alone. <laughs> feeling uniquely pressured to prove herself as a female solo artist in a male-dominated industry, that criticism caused distress for Joplin. That was a pretty heavy time for me, she later said in an interview with Howard Smith of The Village Voice. It was really important, you know, whether people were going to accept me or not. This Mm. interview with Smith was her last interview, and it took place on September 30th, 1970, just four days before her death. Wow. Outside of music, Joplin appeared to be struggling with alcohol and drugs, including an addiction to heroin. Her next album would be her most successful, but tragically also her last. She recorded Pearl with the Full Tilt Boogie Band and wrote two of its songs, the powerful rocking move over and Mercedes Benz, um, which is a gospel styled styled send up of consumerism. So one <laughs> oh, more finger. Yeah, my mom people. sings that all the time. <laughs> uh, well, and me and Bobby McGee is like, oh, I love that song. And mom also sings that all the time. Completed by Joplin's producer, Pearl was released posthumously in 1971 and quickly became a hit. The single Me and Bobby McGee, written by Chris Christofferson, also didn't know that, a former love of Joplin's, reached the top of the charts. I didn't know Chris Christofferson wrote that. Yeah. Every time I think of Janice Joplin, I think your mom. Yeah. Yeah. She still has a picture of Janice. I bought mom a picture of Janice Joplin with her, like some cats. Yeah. And it's like a print. And I, I bought it when I was like either in high school or in college and like gave it to her, I think on Mother's Day or something. And she never like framed it or anything, but it's over the door in the dining room. If you've ever like noticed it, it's kind of random, but I, I love it. it. But I will look there the next time. Yeah. Yeah. 
On Sunday evening, October 4th, 1970, Joplin was found dead on the floor of her room at the Landmark Motor Hotel by her road manager and close friend, John Byrne Cook. Alcohol was present in the room. Newspapers reported that no other drugs or paraphernalia was present, probably because John Byrne Cook threw that shit out. Mm. Um, according, mm. according to 1983 book authored by Joseph Damano, a Los Angeles County coroner, Thomas Noguchi, evidence of na- narcotics were removed from the scene by a friend of Joplin. <laughs> wow, I'm so good at this. Yeah, you and, know ahead of time what's up. And later put back after the person realized that an autopsy was going to reveal that narcotics were in her system. So trying to save face, yeah. but not well, really looking that all the way through. That looks even more suspicious if she's got all this heroin in her, but there's nothing. But there's nothing like, around. Yeah. yeah. The book adds that prior to Joplin's death, Noguchi had investigated other fatal drug overdoses in L.A. where friends believed they were doing favors for descendants by removing evidence of narcotics. Then they thought things over and returned to put back the evidence. Yeah. Noguchi performed an autopsy on Joplin and determined the cause of death to be a heroin overdose, possibly compounded by the alcohol. John Byrne Cook believed Joplin had been given heroin that was much more potent than what she and other L.A. heroin users had received on prior occasions, as was indicated by overdoses of several of her dealer's other customers during the same weekend. Wow. That's the scary thing about the problem. Yeah, it's not nothing. You can't like it's not like weed where you smoke a joint it could be laced with something but nine times out of ten it's okay like the heroin and where like, did you get it you know it just depends right oh <laughs> that's so scary yeah. i would never I, will, I could never imagine Mm-mm. doing that her death was yeah her death was ruled accidental joplin was cremated at pierce brothers westwood village memorial park and mortuary in la and her ashes were scattered from a plane into the pacific ocean Wow. I didn't know that that was a thing. I didn't either, but apparently you can do that if you're Janice Joplin. Yeah, that sounds like big bucks. It does. All right, so now we're going to talk about Brian Jones. Louis Brian Hopkins Jones was born February 28th, 1942 in Cheltenham, Gloucestershire. I hope I said those right. Allison's yeah. over here, like, doesn't have a clue. Like, that's I mean, great. yeah, you do. I think you <laughs> but nailed I'm it. <laughs> I'm just glad you had to read that part. <laughs> They've been like Chelton and Hay. Lucia Shire. Lucia He was an English instrumentalist and singer, best known as the founder rhythm lead guitarist and original leader of the rolling stones a little Hmm. band known as the rolling stones yeah initially a guitarist he went on to provide backing vocals and played a wide variety of instruments on rolling stones recordings and in concerts after he founded the rolling stones as a british blues outfit in 1962 and gave the band its name Jones's fellow band members keith richards and mick jagger began to take over the band's musical direction especially after they became a successful songwriting team. 
Jones and fellow guitarist Richards also developed a unique style of guitar play that Richards refers to as the ancient art of weaving. Of course you would say that. (laughs) Keith Richards. In which both players would play rhythm and lead parts together, which became a Rolling Stones trademark. Jones, however, did not get along with the band's manager, Andrew Luke Oldham, who pushed the band into a musical direction at odds with Jones's blues background and with whom he got into many fights. Mm. So they just, they didn't really like each other. Oldham's arrival as manager marked the beginning of Jones's slow estrangement. The toll from days on the road, the money and the fame and the feeling of being alienated from the group resulted in Jones' overindulgence in alcohol and other drugs. These excesses had a debilitative effect on his physical and mental health, and according to Oldham, Jones became unfriendly and antisocial at times. In March 1967, Anita Pallenberg, Jones' girlfriend of two years, left him for Richards. Damn. When... Mm. When Jones was hospitalized while the three were on a trip to Morocco. What? (laughs) All of that is freaking weird. Right? Wow. Further damaging the already strained relations between Jones and Richards. Yeah, I would guess so. As they would do, right? (laughs) As tensions and Jones's substance abuse increased, his musical contributions became sporadic. Jones was arrested for drug possession on May 10th, 1967, shortly after the Redlands bust at Richard Sussex home. Authorities found marijuana, cocaine, and methamphetamine in his flat. He confessed to marijuana use, but he said he didn't use hard drugs. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Keith Richards, he's on hard hard drugs right now. I don't know Although- how he's still alive. It's, it's probably the drugs. <laughs> Although many noted that Jones could be friendly and outgoing, Wyman Richards and Watts have commented that he could also be cruel and difficult. By most accounts, Jones's attitude changed frequently. He was one minute caring and generous, the next making an effort to make everybody mad. As Wyman observed in Stone Alone which is a documentary, I think. There were at least two sides to Brian's personality. One, Brian was introverted, shy, sensitive, deep thinking. The other was a preening peacock, gregarious, artistic, desperately needing assurance from his peers. Dang. Character assassination. I feel like preening peacock is like such a a good diss. (laughs) (laughs) I need to like work that into my diss book. (laughs) That, like, he thought crap. really hard. He thought really hard about that. <laughs> like you're a preening peacock. <laughs> I feel like that would sting. Yeah. Well, Wyman added, he pushed every friendship to the limit and way beyond. Jones's last formal appearance was in the December 1968 The Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, a part concert, part circus act organized by the band. Sweet. <laughs> right. It went unreleased for more than 25 years because Jagger was unhappy with the band's performance compared to others in the film, such as Jethro Tull, John Lennon, <laughs> The Who, and Taj Mahal. So he, they like recorded this big circus concert and was like, no, we don't sound good. Sorry, guys. To all those people like, nah, we're not going to play that. <laughs> yeah, that one didn't work for us. 
Commentary included as bonus material indicated that almost everyone at the concert sensed that Jones's time with the Rolling Stones was nearing an end. And Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend of The Who thought it would be Jones's last live musical performance. Wow. The Stones decided that following the release of Let It Bleed album scheduled for July 1969 in the U.S., they would start a tour of North America in November 1969. However, the Stones management was informed that Jones would not receive a work permit owing uh, to his drug convictions. What a bitch. That would suck. The Stones decided to add a new guitarist. On June 8th, 1969, Jones was visited by Jagger, Richards, and Watts and was told that the group he had formed would continue without him. Ugh. That would be rough. That would be. To the public, it appeared as if Jones had left voluntarily. The other band members told him that although he was being dismissed, it was his choice how to break it to the public. Jones released a statement on June 9th, 1969, announcing his departure. In this statement, he said, among other things, that I no longer see eye to eye with others over the discs we're cutting, he said. He was replaced by the 20-year-old guitarist Mick Taylor. Wow. So everything got taken away from him. Yeah, everything he started mm. got taken away. But you know what? He was acting like an ass. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened. No. So- but his girlfriend did get stolen by, now I can't even remember if it was Keith it was... Richards. It was Keith Richards, right? Yeah. And that would be pretty difficult to like. Oh, yeah. To like still see him all the time, probably with his freaking ex-girlfriend. Like, that's yeah, terrible. Yeah, even if you didn't, even if you didn't like super love your girlfriend, that would still be like rough. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to be yeah. around. During the period of his decreasing involvement in the band, Jones was living at Cotchford Farm in East Sussex. The residence was formerly owned by Winnie the Pooh author A.A. Milne. Love that. That's awesome, yeah. Which Jones had purchased in November 1968. Alexis Corner, who visited in late June, noted that Jones seemed happier than he had ever been. So, seemed like getting kicked out was a relief jones is known to have contacted corner stewart john lennon mitch mitchell alan price and jimmy miller about intentions to put together another band so he's making future plans got things in the works jones had apparently demoed a few of his own songs in the weeks before his death including has anybody seen my baby and chow time (laughs) oh those songs did those ever get made? <laughs> I don't know. They don't sound great. The names are weird. <laughs> yeah, but maybe they were uh, bangers. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> At around midnight on the night of the 2nd to 3rd of July in 1969, Jones was discovered motionless at the bottom of a swimming pool at Cotchford Farm. His Swedish girlfriend, so good he got another girlfriend, Anna Wallen, was convinced he was alive when he was taken out of the pool, insisting he still had a pulse. However, by the time the doctors arrived, it was too late, and he was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital at the age of 27. The coroner's report Um, stated- I'm going to pause here. He had a lot of other girlfriends, and he also, like, got a lot of people pregnant, I think. Oh, he's like all over the place. He lived a lot of life into his 27 years. 
I didn't okay. include all that in here for time's sake. <laughs> but he was a real Casanova is yeah, what you're I don't saying. Think, I don't think this um, one girlfriend getting stolen by Keith Richards really like was his one and true only. I think he was a pretty big womanizer. <laughs> mm. The coroner's report stated it was a drowning, later clarified as death by misadventure. That is badass. <laughs> and noted his heart and liver were greatly enlarged by past drug and alcohol abuse. Upon Jones's death, the Who's Pete Townsend wrote a poem titled A Normal Day for Brian, A Man Who Died Every Day, printed in the, the Times. Jimi Hendrix dedicated a song to him on U.S. television, and Jim Morrison of The Doors published a poem titled Ode to L.A. while thinking of Brian Jones' deceased. Cool. That really that tells you the story. Tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Coincidentally, Hendrix and Morrison both died within the following two years, with Morrison's death uh, falling on the same date as Jones's. Wow. Well, the first one, Pete Townsend's poem, A Normal Day for Brian, a Man Who Died Every Day. That sounds like poetic. I don't know. Like, cool. Yeah. It's yeah. like such a good title and then freaking jim morrison rolling in here oh well thinking about brian jones deceased <laughs> like what is that i feel like that's the poem right there like that's the end period what? you told your story yeah. and you're done it's a limerick <laughs> <laughs> what kind of poem title is that jim morrison um, when asked if he felt guilty about Jones's death, Mick Jagger told Rolling Stone in 1995, no, I don't really. I do feel that I behaved in a very childish way, but we were very young and in some ways we picked on him. But unfortunately, he made himself the target for it. He was very, very jealous, very difficult, very manipulative. And if you do that in this kind of a group of people, you get back as good as you give, to be honest. I wasn't, or to be honest. I wasn't understanding enough about his drug addiction. No one seemed to know much about drug addiction. Things like LSD were all new. No one knew the harm. People thought cocaine was good for you. Mm -hmm. Okay, but let's just pick this apart just a, just a touch. Yeah. He's very, very jealous. Okay, well, you took away his whole band that he created. You he took was away like that to begin with, though. That's the problem then why would you think somebody's going to change? I feel I don't like think they did. That's why that's, they kicked him out. Nobody was that's like, on hey, them. that's on them. Cause you, for you to change. If you knew who Which he was on them, <laughs> the fact that you got in business with a guy who's very jealous and very difficult and very yeah. manipulative. That's on you, boo boo. And I'm sure they don't care because they got so much money and they're obviously going to live forever somehow. It, it is crazy. So hashtag worth it. They kicked That's the true. guy out and he was toxic, but then he died right after, which is sad, that is but it sad. doesn't sound like it was because of that. He was making plans. He mm -hmm. was the happiest he's ever been according to a friend. So therefore I don't think this was like a, I'm going to take a bunch of stuff and sink to the bottom of my pool. I think it really was death by misadventure. Right. <laughs> If I'm 90 and I, I just want that to be what my, what it says. Figure out what you have to do. <laughs> right. I need to know. It just put that in my will. Which things are, fall into this category so I can make sure I do it. <laughs> 
Wyman said of Jones, as the years go by, I become even more convinced that he's entitled to a free pardon. Brian Jones is a legend and his legacy is there for all to hear. While the Rolling Stones damaged all of us in some way, Brian was the only one that died. Yeah. That's sad. That is sad. Uh, theories surrounding Jones's death developed soon afterwards with associates of the Stones claiming to have information that he was murdered. According to rock biographer Philip Norman, the murder theory would bubble back to the surface every five years or so, he said. In 1993, it was reported that Jones was murdered by Frank Thurgood, a builder who was doing construction work on the property. He was the last person to see Jones alive. Thurgood allegedly confessed the murder to the Rolling Stones driver, Tom Keylock, who later denied this. The Thoroughgood theory was dramatized in the 2005 film Stoned. Thoroughgood is alleged to have killed Jones in a fight over money. He had been paid 18,000 pounds for work on Cotchford Farm, but he wanted six pounds, 6,000 pounds from the musician. Is that right? Six pounds. Yeah, 6,000. It was made okay. me laugh that you're like, six. <laughs> just six pounds and then he killed him (laughs) (laughs) the killing is alleged to have been covered up by senior police officers when they discovered how badly the investigation into jones's death had been botched by the local police and if what is said about him is true and he's difficult i mean that makes sense In August 2009, Sussex police decided to conduct a case review of Jones's death for the first time since 1969 after new evidence was handed to them by Scott Jones, an investigative journalist who had traced many of the people who were at Brian Jones's house the night he died. The journalist had also uncovered unseen police files held at the National Archives. In 2010, following the review, Sussex police stated it would not be reopening the case. Wow. It asserted that this has been thoroughly reviewed by Sussex police's crime policy and review branch, but there is no new evidence to suggest that the coroner's original verdict of death by misadventure was incorrect. Hmm. So he gets to keep the title. <laughs> That's a good title. Hmm, I wonder what really happened then. I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. hmm. Indeed. All right. The next one is a pretty big one. You might have heard of him. Uh, <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix. Hendrix. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Hendrix, by name of James Marshall Hendrix, originally John Allen Hendrix, was born November 27th, 1942 in Seattle, Washington. Uh, through his active career as a featured artist, uh, it, he lasted a mere four years. Hendrix altered the course, which is crazy because I feel like he's got so four much years. stuff. Yeah. But four years, that's not very long. Mm-mm. Hendrix altered the course of popular music and became one of the most successful and influential musicians of his era. An instrumentalist who radically redefined the expressive potential and sonic palette of the electric guitar. He was the composer of a classic. Oh, geez. This looks repertoire. French repertoire of songs <laughs> ranging uh from ferocious rockers to delicate complex ballads he had a difficult childhood sometimes living in the care of relatives or acquaintances his mother lucille was only 17 uh whenever hendrix was born she had a stormy ooh, stormy relationship with his father Al. 
and eventually left the family after the couple had two more children together, sons Leon and Joseph. Hendrix would only see his mother sporadically before her death in 1958. So she's the one that was like, peace. Mm. That's wild. In some ways, music became a sanctuary for Hendrix. He was a fan of blues and rock and roll. And his father's encouragement, he taught himself to play guitar. Before Hendrix was 19 years old, law authorities had twice caught him riding in stolen cars. And he was given a choice between going to prison or joining the army. You think I'm allowed to do that? Maybe. Like a scared straight thing. Like you choose your own adventure book. Four years in the army or four years in prison. I'd take the army too. I don't know how I do in the army. I don't know. I don't think I do great. I don't know how I don't know how I do in prison either. I mean, I don't think I do great there either. I don't like people telling me what to do, like ever. I'll yeah, eat when no, I want to. I don't know. That's hard. That would be difficult. I don't know. I'm a I'm a pansy. That's why I wouldn't last. And you have problems with authority. <laughs> <laughs> That's all true. However, at least with the army you're getting like on the job training and like something to hopefully set you up afterward yeah that's what i was thinking like army looks better on your (laughs) life rap sheet than prison so i don't know well in prison that's like harder than just jail right prison's like the clink because i think he was gonna go for a while wow so he chose the latter (laughs) And enlisted on May 31st, 1961. After completing eight weeks of basic training at Fort Ord, California, he was assigned to the 101st Airborne Division and stationed at Fort Campbell in Kentucky. He arrived on November 8th, and soon afterward, he wrote to his father. And in this letter, it said, There's nothing but physical training and harassment here for two weeks. Then when you go to jump school, you get hell. They work you to death, fussing and fighting. So he's not having a good time. No. In his next letter home, Hendrix, who had left his guitar in Seattle at the home of his girlfriend, Betty Jean Morgan, asked his father to send it to him as soon as possible, stating, I really need it now. Aw. Aw. <laughs> sad. I know. It's nice that he has something that will, like, bring him peace, though. Mm-hmm. Hendrix served in the Army until 1962 when he was honorably discharged after injuring himself during a parachute jump. So, wow. The Army was the right choice because he didn't yeah. have to go for that long. <laughs> I think that it's interesting that, like, he was in the Army and then he sings all along the Watchtower, which is like, mm-hmm. what is that? Vietnam, like the song yeah. for Vietnam. Like, Every time you watch a movie, that's the song that's playing when they're doing a montage. Right. So good. After leaving the military, Hendrix began working under the name Jimmy. James as a session musician playing backup for such performers as Little Richard, B.B. King, and Sam Cooke. And the I... 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 Zly... <laughs> Isley Brothers. I don't know you why that was there. so freaking difficult. <laughs> Dang. In 1965, he also formed a group of his own called Jimmy James and the Blue Flames, which played gigs around New York City's Greenwich Village neighborhood. 
In mid-1966, Hendricks met Chaz Chandler, bass player of the British rock group The Animals, good band, who mm-hmm. signed an agreement with Hendricks to become his manager. Chandler convinced Hendricks to go to London, where he joined forces with bassist Noel, Red- Noel Redding and drummer Mitch Mitchell to form the Jimi Hendrix Experience. While performing in England, Hendrix built up quite a following among the country's rock royalty with the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Who, and Eric Clapton all becoming great admirers of his work. What a, like, wow. Mm-hmm. One critic for the British music magazine Melody Maker said that he had great stage presence and looked at times as if he were playing with no hands at all. Because he was just flying. Mm-hmm. Did you say Greenwich Village earlier? <laughs> yeah, that's what it says. It's Greenwich. 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 <laughs> they know what I'm I saying. Been sticking with me the whole time. That was like ten minutes. <laughs> I'm. I'm proud of you for locking it up for that long. Mm. I love you. <laughs> How is it? <laughs> you didn't notice my face. What? What? Did, how do you say it? Greenwich? Greenwich Village. Greenwich Village. No. I don't know how that's never come up in your life. That is spelled wrong. No, it's not. <laughs> What's with the W in there? I can't. It's just how you say it, all right? <laughs> I have my own language, and nobody else. You are just it. super hooked on phonics. Greenwich <laughs> Village. I mean, that's what it looks like. That's just not what it is. And don't throw freaking French words in there, okay? It's not going to go well. So funny. Or Spanish, but or American. Nothing. American English. I mean, jeez. So, moral of the story: He's doing pretty well he's killing it he's killing it released in 1967 the Jimi hendrix experience's first single hey joe was an instant smash in britain and was soon followed by such hits as purple haze and the wind cries mary on tour to support his first album are you experienced hendrix delighted audience is with his outrageous guitar playing skills and its innovative experimental sound in June of 1967, he also won over American music fans with his stunning performance at the Monterey Pop Festival, which ended with Hendrix lighting his guitar on fire. What? So that's something you can do. I didn't. How does that even work? It has to be lighter fluid involved. Probably. <laughs> I feel like I've seen the video of that, but I don't. I don't remember the details. Mm-hmm. Quickly becoming a rock superstar, later that year, Hendrix scored again with his second album, Axis, Bold as Love. His final album, as part of the Jimi Hendrix experience, Electric Ladyland, featured the hit All Along the Watchtower, which was written by Bob Dylan. Hmm, I did not know that. I did know that. Bob Dylan writes freaking everything. He does. You know, I like the songs. I'm just not a huge Bob Dylan fan. I know either. There's a handful of his songs that I prefer him singing, but more often than not, no. (laughs) He's he's very whiny. Like there's just something up with his voice. I don't know. Why you gotta be crying? You're famous. Like get over it. Um, There are a couple 
just a couple where he's the one to be singing them. <laughs> yeah. The band continued to tour until it split up in 1969, in which Hendrix performed at another legendary musical event, the Woodstock Music Festival. Little famous thing there. Mm-hmm. Hendrix was the last performer to appear in the three day plus festival. And he played a rock rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. I'm sure everybody's seen that video. It gives me chills thinking about it. It's so good. It it amazed the crowds and demonstrated his considerable talent as a musician. Also an accomplished songwriter and producer by this time, Hendrix had his own recording studio, Electric Lady, in which he worked with different performers to try out new songs and sounds. In late 1969, Hendrix put together a new group forming Band of Gypsies with his army buddy, Billy Cox, and drummer, Buddy Miles. The band never really took off, however, and Hendrix began working on a new album tentatively named First Rays of the New Rising Sun with Cox and uh, Mitch Mitchell. Sadly, Hendrix would not live to complete the project. Can I just say, not only is he the songbird of a generation, he names things excellently. Mm-hmm. electric lady recording studio recording studio name and then first rays of the new rising sun damn love that album title <laughs> yes he is amazing with naming things mm-hmm. way better than freaking jim morrison i tell you that <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> oh god that kind of lines up with their songs and music though too right like yes. Jimi Hendrix is like next level, and Jim Morrison's like white. Light toast. my fire, <laughs> light my fire. <laughs> right. Same thing repeated over and over. Poor man. For some days prior to his death, Hendrix had been in poor health, in part from fatigue caused by overwork, a chronic lack of sleep, and an assumed influenza-related illness insecurities about his personal relationships as well as disillusionment with the music industry had also contributed to his frustration although the details of his final hours and death are disputed hendrix spent much of his last day alive with monica daneman in the morning hours of september 18th 1970 daneman found hendrix unresponsive in her apartment at the samarkland hotel 22 Lansdowne Crescent, Notting Hill. She called for an ambulance at 1118 and Hendrix was taken to St. Mary Abbott's Hospital where an attempt was made to resuscitate him. He was pronounced dead at 1245 p.m. Wow. The postmortem examination concluded that Hendrix aspirated on his own vomit and died of asphyxia while intoxicated with barbiturate. Oh, what the fuck is that? I, I can't think of how to say this. Barbiturates? Is that it? Bar- barbiturates. Why is it spelled like that? I don't know. We're <laughs> English is so hard. Oh my goodness. I know what it is, but I don't know how to say it. Um, that would suck. Yeah. I do not want to choke on my own vomit. Mm-mm. Ugh. Yeah. Rough. At the inquest, the coroner, finding no evidence of suicide and lacking suspic- sufficient evidence of the circumstances, recorded an open verdict. Daneman stated that Hendrix had taken nine of her prescribed Vesperax sleeping tablets, which is 18 times oh. the recommended dosage. 
so was that take half of the half of one was that not like weird for her like that's crazy i don't know hmm. yeah you would think you would stay up and like watch someone that did that or maybe or call do something yeah i mean maybe for sure maybe his tolerance was just that high from all the other shit that that's what he needed i guess i don't know but that's bad yeah on october 1st 1970 hendrix was interred at greenwood cemetery in renton washington in 1992 his former girlfriend kathy etchingham asked british authorities to reopen the investigation into hendrix's death a subsequent inquiry by Scotland Yard proved inconclusive, and in 1993, they decided against proceeding with an investigation. Huh. So, so that was... suspicious. That was before. So his new girlfriend, was that Monica? Because... I don't I looked, know. I looked her up because I wanted to see what her face looked like, and they and... are... They're cute. They are so cute together. Oh, are they? They are. So is this other girlfriend saying that maybe Monica Daneman had something to do with it? I mean, I don't know. It is weird that you would let somebody take freaking nine times or 18 times the recommended dosage and then just be like, peace out. I don't know. Oh, they are cute together. Stop. They're so cute. That is very strange, though. Like, if you saw somebody do that, you wouldn't just be like, all right, cool. I'll be back later. Yeah. Enjoy the ride. Right. Like, like, I'd be taking you to the hospital and you'd be getting your stomach pumped. Right. But she must have gone to do something. She found him later. Mm-hmm. So, I don't like that. I don't like that either. Okay, so now we've got some honorable mentions in the 27 Club. There's um, a lot of people, let me just say, that, like, are listed, and I just pulled people that I, I knew who they were, and there honestly wasn't a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't even know who some of these people are, I just know their bands. <laughs> right. Uh, so, Alan Blind Al Wilson, he died of a drug overdose. He was the lead singer and primary composer of Canned Heat, Let's Work Together, Forrest Gump. You know, Let's and- Work Together? Yeah. I do. Okay. And then I wrote Forrest Gump after here because that's what it reminds me of. Yeah. Because they play it. Right. After the New Year's Eve thing. Yeah. Like on the New Year's Eve part. Yeah. Lieutenant Dan. <laughs> that I love that scene. And when they count down and the yeah. girls kiss Forrest and then it like pans over to Lieutenant Dan and he's got all the confetti <laughs> in his hair and he looks so, so unhappy. Gary Sinise, he played that so good. He I want to watch. So good. I need to watch that again too. We should have a movie night because I haven't watched it in so long. I feel like you get different perspectives on that movie as you age. I so agree. I feel like it's a good one to like rewatch at different times. It's it's time. <laughs> I agree, and I feel like that movie is like three different movies in one. Like there's so mm-hmm. it's they talk about so so much happens in it. It's so good. Right. Uh the next one, Ron Pigpin McKernan, gastrointestinal hemorrhage, which sounds awful. That does not he, sound like a good time. He was the founding member, keyboardist, and singer of the Grateful Dead. 
Peter Ham suicide. He was the keyboardist and guitarist leader of Bad Finger, No Matter What, which is from the Now and you Then know, soundtrack. Yeah, you which know that is, one too, right? That's another and soundtrack. Also, that's, a very good soundtrack. <laughs> ah, yeah. All right, and then we also have Kurt Cobain, the founding member, lead singer, guitarist, and songwriter for Nirvana. You can go listen all about Kurt Cobain in our episode 73 on Kurt Cobain. He got his own episode. Yeah, everything you need to know can be found there. Um, Amy Winehouse, she died of alcohol poisoning, and she's a singer-songwriter. And then... Our one lone non-musician, Anton Yelkin, died in a terrible Ugh. accident with a car. So, like, not a car accident, but accident with a car. Do you and know that? What happened with it? Yeah. Didn't it go into drive and roll down the hill and, like, pin him? Yeah. It Ugh. rolled over top of him. That is so terrible. He's so cute. So he cute. so cute. Terrible. I hate it, I hate yeah. it too. So... While the 27 Club isn't an official club, there are a lot of world-changing artists that passed at the age of 27. So what do you think that is? What's up with that? What is up what with that? What do you that? think that is, Allie? I don't think it's scientific. I no, think... I don't think it's scientific either. <laughs> I think it's just really bad timing. And I think most of them live like a really hard life and do lots of drugs and a lot of drinking and things go overboard at that age I guess yeah because you're not you're still trying to figure things out you're not you still don't feel like you're quite the adult and like Jimi Hendrix he had all that happen in the span of four years and could you imagine going from nothing to then being bombarded with all that stuff going to parties getting offered things like it's I could definitely see where that would drugs would be a problem Mm -hmm. and it's all be free for sure Right. Be crazy. Oh, so go ahead and cite your sources, and then I've got something else to say. Okay. I used biography.com, wikipedia.com, grunge.com, Britannica.com, and rollingstones.com. Okay. So this is not a part of anything we're talking about here, but we we had a movie night. We had a movie night and you brought up something and I think we should tell everybody about it because it's very important that everybody has a safe word. Oh, oh, okay. Yes. So, I was so, telling Allie. Yeah. Tell about them about it. I had a conversation with my mother because I had seen some news interview where this woman, I think it was her parents had gotten taken for all this money because there's some way like AI or something where they can take your voice and basically make phone calls as you. So they had used this girl's voice to call her parents and say that she was in some sort of accident or something and she needed money. And it took a really long time to explain this to Allie. (laughs) (laughs) I was not understanding. But, But you get a safe word, like not even a safe word. I don't know what the right word is, like a code word with the people in your lives to say that are is completely unrelated but that way they know it's you 
calling because I feel like in in no world would it make sense where I would be in a situation where I would call my mother and be like wire me this much money to this random place mm-hmm. but I feel like she might do it if she didn't know you know what I mean if we hadn't had that conversation because I feel like in a panicked situation I probably would too oh yeah because you think oh my gosh they need it right now yeah. like I, I've never I've, I don't know. It just blew my mind because that is so scary. And we talked about like whenever we were young, having a safe word, whenever you were at the bus stop and some Joe Schmo says, oh, your parents are in an accident. And then you have to have a safe word or say, you know, some sort of yeah. word. So you know that it's legit, but I never thought about like using AI mimicking voices to try to get this month. Like that's, that's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. So, so now we have a safe a- word so y'all can't get any of our money. <laughs> yeah, you need to pick a word and tell your parents, any fam- anybody, friends, family, anybody that you, would, words. <laughs> that you would send money to that this is a thing because mm-hmm. that's so scary. It is scary. This world. I, just, I wanted to talk about it in the beginning and then we got on to something else. So <laughs> this was important. Yeah, I think it's good to do something to think about you got to protect yourselves out there stay safe out there friends (laughs) because they are one step ahead all the time and i hate it they're so smart Mm -hmm. swindle me for uh, all the money i have a thousand (laughs) dollars i would be the i would be the worst all the money i have access to thousand (laughs) dollars right they would be so pissed they wasted all that time because right because I'd be like, it's sorry, not worth it over here, friends. It's not I, worth it. I'd be like, I know this isn't my mother because you know I don't have this kind of money, <laughs> like, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, okay. Well, that's all she wrote. Um, that is we, all she wrote. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode 141 on the 27 Club. Send us a message to get your free pin. And we appreciate you listening. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye.